Good morning, brothers and sisters. Good to see you here today. I want to share a little update before we get into the word. Um, my name is David Lang. I'm from the Bridge House, New England Aftercare Ministries. We've been in ministry for over 35 years, um, founded by James Spence. Um, I do have a newsletter, and the newsletter this month actually talks about our founder and the beginnings of the Bridge House, so they're on the back table. If you do want to get our newsletters, you can also sign up for it there as well, just to let you know. Um, so we are a residential home for people with what is today called substance use disorder. It used to be called addiction or drug abuse or whatever you wanted. It went by different names. It's hopefully to try to reduce some of the shame so the stigma of what it means is understood in a, in a more fuller, holistic way. Many opportunities. We have two houses, can fit 33 men in it. It's residential, they're there 24 hours a day. We have counselors, we have overnight staff. We feed them. Sometimes we have to clothe them. They come with the, many of the men that come to us have homeless backgrounds. They have very little. When you're homeless, you don't take a lot with you. And so we hook them up with all different kinds of things. We offer them spirituality. We are licensed by the state. Um, well, recently, I'll just share a story with you. Um, a man came in, knew that we were a faith-based Christian organization, said, well, I'm an atheist and I don't believe in any of this stuff. He says, okay, that's fine. You're welcome. Come on in. He began going to the spirituality group on Tuesday nights. His counselor noticed that he was carrying a Bible around in a few weeks. And so during their next session, she said to him, well, you told me you were an atheist and what's this, you carrying a Bible around? He says, well, people are allowed to change, you know. <laughs> We definitely, we definitely agree with that. Um, in addition to our, our counseling that we do, we give opportunity for the men to reach out into other areas. Uh, every Friday morning, there's a men's group that meets at a church, and uh, many of the men go to that as well. Uh, there's outreach to that. Aside from our, what we do with our license, we also have outreach into prisons. We go to one prison every week, another prison every other week. One of the things that one of our intake counselors is teaching on um, is on, how many of you have heard of Peacemaker? Okay, he actually teaches how to resolve conflicts, which is an important, valuable thing for preparing life outside of prison. So um, we, we have a lot of things like that. Um, I would encourage you to pray for us because we need prayer. We receive men with a unique opportunity in their lives when they're, they're coming face to face with some of the problems in their lives. And we have an, a unique opportunity and just pray the Lord will open door. We have many Christians on staff who will witness and share with them that God will use them for them coming into the kingdom of God and understanding what the real purpose of life is. Um, we have two employment opportunities. We need an over, overnight supervisor. We also need another clinician. Um, so if you know anyone interested in the field or you want to spread the word, please do so. Um, and as I shared with you, um, we also have our newsletter. Please take a copy of that. Um, one of the things we need, and we don't actually have a board member from this church, and this church has been faithfully supporting us for decades, is if you feel a call of God, like, you know, I'd like to be involved in something like that. It's not a large time commitment, but we you pray for the ministry. You'll understand some of the inner workings of the Bridge House. 
please see me afterward or contact me. My email, my card is on the back table. We would appreciate it. We, to many degrees, the people who become our board members will lead the ministry and the where we're going years from now. Uh, how many of you know just because you started as a Christian ministry, it doesn't mean you're going to end as one? Does anyone know that? Have you ever read the history of a lot of denominations in America? Okay, you begin to see that they can lose touch with those things. Um, so anyway, well, let's bow for a word of prayer before we get into the word. Prepare our hearts before our Savior. Father, I wish I could take my shoes off because we're approaching holy ground. We're, we're going to go into the word. We're going to go into the Bible. We're going to go into the word of the living God, this one book that's been around for thousands of years, Lord. And we dare to open it, to understand you, to understand your heart, your ways. So, Holy Spirit, please, you're the teacher of the church. Please instruct and teach. Tenderize our hearts so that we'll love you more fully and love people more fully. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's open up our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. How many here have ever heard of something called a parable? Jesus taught in parables. Um, in the Greek, now, Jesus probably wasn't speaking Greek when he gave these. He was probably speaking Aramaic. But they translated into Greek, and the word they use, and you think of the word parable, it, you know, when you think of parallel lines, what do you think about? You think about lines that are right next to each other, that are side. Well, parable is to throw aside. In other words, a parable is a story or a teaching taken from material or natural life that's also supposed to show us a spiritual truth. So this is what's taking place in the natural. Now let's apply that spiritually to us, okay? Um, some of the teachers of the church in the history of Christianity, have one brother called a parable is like an orange. Beautiful fruit, but you gotta get past the rind <laughs> to get the good tasting fruit. You have to dig a little deeper. You've gotta get into it to, to, to see it a little deeper. So Matthew chapter 13, this whole chapter is filled with parables. We're gonna focus on one parable, the first one. Chapter 13, we're gonna start verse one. I'm reading from the English uh, version, the English um, standard, standard version. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, which they did not, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So we have this most basic parable. 
in Mark's gospel, if you wanted to look there, chapter 4, verse 13, when the disciples asked him, why are you speaking to the people in parables? Jesus understood that they weren't getting this parable of the sower and the seed and the soil. And he said to them, you don't understand this one? How will you understand any of them? In a way, Jesus was saying, if you don't get this parable, you will not get the other parables that I'm sharing with you. This is a basic parable. This, this, this is a parable that's so vital and so important. It's important for us to understand what Jesus is saying. Let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 66, because I think this will help us help, as it were, get us in the right context of parables. Chapter 66 and verse 1 and 2. One of the nice things about the parable we'll be discussing today is Jesus gives the interpretation. So we can understand from Jesus what this parable means, the seed and the sower. But chapter 66 and verse 1 and 2. I'll give a little background before we read this. Under the old covenant, Israel, who represented God to the world, as it were, built a tabernacle. They built this incredible large temple. The temple had many different areas to it, and it was beautiful, and it was expensive. When Solomon built the temple, he overlaid just about everything in gold. It's probably the most expensive building that anyone had ever built, definitely of, of antiquity. It was, just, it was just glorious, it was great, and this represented God. The great, the one high priest could go into the Holy of Holies only once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that's what it means, that he would go in there to present blood sacrifice for himself and for the people of God, because without the, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So they needed to do that. And this represents, and so for the Jew, for the Israelite, oh, the temple, the temple. Can you imagine what it would have been like to live thousands of years ago, about 3,000 years ago, and see Solomon's temple? Now you couldn't go inside it because that was only reserved for certain people. And you definitely couldn't get into the Holy of Holies because that only the one high priest could go once a year and he went in there probably a little trembling at that. And so when we think about edifices that people make, there's no grander edifice that a human being could make than the temple for the one true living God. There have been many temples built for gods. People don't even worship them anymore. But the one true God has been worshipped thousands of years ago, and we were here this morning worshipping the same God that they worshipped thousands of years ago. That's pretty cool, isn't it? We were worshiping the living God. We don't have a statue of him. We don't have a picture of him to worship. The Bible says, don't do that. <laughs> I'm sorry if I hurt anyone's feelings. <laughs> Get over it, <laughs> okay? Um, but we've served the God in spirit and in truth. We serve the one true living God that you cannot make a picture of. It goes way beyond our imagination, but I want you to see what the Isaiah says here. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. Think about that. Heaven is my throne. We look up and gaze in these stars and, and they say the third heaven is even beyond that. 
He said, heaven is my throne. Oh, Lord, look at this great, massive creation we see out there. As one person said, it makes our seas look small, which we think are very large. So what about that? He says, oh, that's my seat. That's my chair. There's someone greater than the heavens above, and that is God. God most high. There's nothing higher than God. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Even with this grand temple, he says, do you think that's impressing me? But look at what does impress God. All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You think you can build a house that God is going to be impressed with, that he'll actually go in? No way. Because God is no respecter of persons, he must be a respecter of hearts. He sees people's hearts. I can't show you what that is. I'm not talking about my physical heart. I'm talking about my spiritual innermost being. What is the intention? What is it that I, what is my truest desire? What am I really going for? And I can deceive people from outward appearance. Oh, well, he's director of a home that's trying to help guys homeless and this, that, and the other. He must be a good guy. Oh, boy, if it was only that easy. <laughs> if it was only that easy. We have to pour our hearts out before the living God. And brothers and sisters, what I just shared with you is the essence of the parable that Jesus spoke. Let's go back to Matthew Chapter 13. Again, Jesus gives the interpretation himself. Chapter, verse 4. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell among the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Now, I want you to think about something. Anyone here know farmers, or you've been a farmer, or anything like that? Anyone? Or maybe you have a garden. I don't know. <laughs> maybe you do it on a very small scale or whatever. We live in a time, we're, we're not an agrarian, we're not an agri agricultural society anymore. How many people ate breakfast this morning? How many ate something last week? How many ate something last month? Well, if you, if you haven't eaten since last month, you wouldn't be here. You'd be in a hospital or you'd be, we'd be doing a memorial service for you. We are dependent on food. We are dependent on food. So that's why when Jesus gives a parable, it's an agrarian parable based on food, it will always relate to us if we just put two cents together and figure it out. Now, so you got farmer, we'll call him Isaac. Nice Jewish guy. And he's going to be sowing seed. What does Isaac have to do before he puts the seed into the ground? I'm sorry? What's that? He's got to till the ground. He's got to till it. Those farmers got to go out there and they got to 
And back then they did it with oxen and things like that. And so they're taking it down there and then they're taking it this way. Then they're going the other direction. They're, they need to break up that soil. You know what fallow ground is? Fallow ground is soil that hasn't been broken up. God tells us to break up our fallow ground. So you see, the seed is the word of God. It's the same seed going everywhere. So think about this. He said some of the seed fell by the wayside. And the birds came and ate it up right away. Let's go down to verse 18. He, there's a little parenthetical statement in between those that we're not going to focus on. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. The difference between the soil that was on the path and the soil that was in the field, what was the difference? One was tilled, the other was not. It's the path. And so if we see that the condition of the soil is the condition of the heart, what kind of heart is the heart that's by the wayside, where it's just, we call it a hard heart. What do we mean by a hard heart, an obstinate heart, a heart that is indifferent to the things of God, a heart that I'm doing things my way and I'm going to go my path and this is the way it is and I don't want any interference from anyone else. They can listen to Billy Graham preaching his best sermon and it will do nothing because their heart is hard. Remember, what will God look to? He looks to the one with a contrite and a humble heart, the heart that's been broken up, the heart that's been tilled, the heart that's been, I'm doing things my own way and it ain't working and there's something wrong with me. I can't fix it myself. The hard heart doesn't even get it to sprout. Now think about the birds. Now let's say you're Mr. Robin or Mrs. Robin and you're looking to eat. And good old farmer Isaac's out there and he's casting his seed. That's the way that they would broadcast, that's where we get the word broadcast. He's casting his seed upon the soil. He's broken it up. But some of the seed fell by the roadside. Now, if you're Mr. or Mrs. Robin and you're looking for seed, what seed are you going to see easier? And what will be easier to get to? The seed that's on the roadside, right? Doesn't, doesn't that make sense? Now, how, how many of you know birds have very good eyesight? <laughs> you know, a hawk that's flying, you know, hundreds of feet in the air can spot that little shrew mouse going, oh, dinner, at least an appetizer. <laughs> um, so... It's the understanding, the hardness. So we have to guard ourselves against being hard-hearted. So what is the opposite of being hard-hearted? Being tender-hearted, right? Having a tender heart. I like what Jonathan Edwards said. He says, a tender heart is a heart that is easily moved. A heart that is easily moved. They see someone in trouble. Oh, what, what, what can we do to help? When they're coming into the presence of God, they actually believe the words they're singing. And tears can well up in their eyes and their heart can beat faster. And they're actually, yes, their heart is tender before the Lord. And they're saying, yes, Holy Spirit, come show me. What do you want in my life? That's being tender hearted. 
That's being tenderhearted. Let's go to the next soil. Verses 5 and 6. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Let's go down to the interpretation of that, verses 20 and 21. As for what was sown, this is Jesus speaking, what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And then tri when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. There was some soil there. It germinated. It sprouted up very quickly, but it didn't go deep. It was shallow. And then when the sun came out, now, when we lived in North Dakota, they do small seeds, so there's a lot of wheat grown there, some soybean, but a lot of wheat that gets grown there, and, you know, pastoring a church with everybody's a farmer just about in the church and all that. It was very dry. We get like, what, 40 to 60 inches of rain a year in our area. They get about 14 inches of rain in their area. But if you dig up their ground, their black, rich topsoil is about three feet deep. <laughs> you know, you do it around here, it's maybe half an inch to two inches, you know. Down there, it's, man, that's deep. Well, why is it? Because they don't get much rain, so it doesn't leach the nutrients out of the soil. It's right there. They put it in the ground. So I remember my first year there, I was, you know, in my 20s, and I'm excited, man, I'm going to preach the word, and I know this stuff. And, and um, so I'm, I'm trying to learn, and I says, well, you know, we, we need a good rain in the early part of, of the season so that the seed germinates and gets a good start. And I thought, oh, great. So they got a good rain, and I went up to Brother Griebley. It was German-Norwegian people, so you're either German or you're a Norwegian, except for me. <laughs> so I'm there, and I said, oh, Brother Griebley, it looks like we're going to have a great crop this year. We've got the rain right when the game. And he looked at me a little, we'll see. <laughs> We'll see. Okay, well, so it's coming up really good and it's going on there. There's a, there's a portion where the seed begins to, you begin to see the seed, but it still needs another rain. They call, they, it needs to, what they called, fill the heads. And one of the most beautiful sights you can see when you're in North Dakota or in any place where they do small grain, and they always have wind just about all the time, is when the stalks are up there and they've got that second rain and the heads fill and the heads become so heavy that the weed or barley or whatever it is, they begin to droop a little bit. The heads are so heavy with seed, it begins to droop a little bit. Now it's green in North Dakota for about two months and then it becomes brown and gray, okay? So it's, when it begins to get golden gray and it's, when you see the wind, it's just like watching the ocean. Did you see, it's like flowing of waves of, of you know, you know, um, you know, like, so when that, what was the song, America, the Beatle, Amber Waves. I mean, it's just like that. It's just fantastic. It's just beautiful. You see, wow, look at that rich soil. So I remember going to Brother Griebley because we got the second rain and the heads are full. He says, man, it's going to be a great crop this year, isn't it, Brother Griebley? Man, the seeds are good. And he looked at me, we'll see. Because <laughs> one of the things I didn't know but it's true, is that every time 
A farmer puts his seed in the ground. It's just like the Bible says, you sow with tears. When you reap, it will be with joy. But until you reap, you have no guarantee of a crop. I've seen a farmer one week before he was harvesting got a hailstorm and it ruined his whole crop. Can you imagine? You're working all year for one harvest. Can you imagine wherever you work, whatever you do, if they say, well, we will pay you on the last day of the year after you've worked a year here and you'll get your full paycheck, you know, whatever that would be, if it's a six figure or five figure or four, whatever it is, you're going to get that full payment right then and there. That's what it's like to be a farmer. Until the harvest comes in, and even when you have a great harvest, it may not be good because the prices might have dropped so low, it's not worth it. Now, so this is sort of a commercial to honor farmers, okay? Because they do a lot of risk. And it's very hard work. I, I didn't know harder working people than farmers and ranchers that I saw out, out in the Great Plains states. These guys are working diligently. But there was a shallowness. There was a lack of commitment. The response was, hey, Jesus is pretty good, you know? I mean, I really like his teaching, or I saw a miracle. Man, this is great, man. Yeah, I'll follow him. That's great, 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 great. But there's not that daily working out, that building that relationship. There's no depth. Now, I got saved during the what they called the Jesus Revolution time back in the 70s. Anyone here can relate to that? Okay, well, they... I mean... I, Going, I mean, there, there's a little Bible study in our, in our, in, that's going on, and I didn't, I didn't become a Christian yet, but when I became a Christian, that little Bible study of 10 or 15 was in my high school with around 700 kids coming to it. They, had, they actually got the auditorium at the high school for 700, and there's 700 of them, and I'm in there. Mr. Former Atheist now came to Jesus, and these guys are going wild. They're raising their hands and clapping and shouting and all and speaking in tongues and all kinds of stuff, and I'm thinking... I got to get out of here. It's bedlam. You know, I thought, man, this is just crazy and stuff like that. But I was, they were theater seats. So I was sort of stuck there and I said, well, I am a Christian now. So I guess I better learn to get along with this kind of stuff. And then I became one of them. <laughs> and so I'm raising my hands and doing all kinds of stuff and this, that, and the other. But one thing I noticed is that eventually with, within another year, it's 2000 and we're meeting in a larger facility in Washington, D.C., I'm thinking, wow, this is great. But one of the things I noticed after I'd been following the Lord for about a year and a half is a lot of people were falling away. A lot of people weren't following through with their commitment to Christ. Their commitment was shallow. It was great with all the experiences. I mean, you know, pick up, pick up this guy. He's drunk on the street and he gets saved and you see him get sober and he's going along with God. And, you know, he was a true believer. But then there were other people like, well, I got my career to think about. And this Jesus thing, it was just sort of a fad I did for a while. Shallow commitment. Not really there for the long haul. There was something true about it at the beginning. Maybe they were dependent on a method. Maybe, maybe they came to Christ, not because they were coming to Christ, but they were coming to this. That's why I think we, pardon me, brothers and sisters, for sharing that, we have to be very careful about overdoing apologetics. And this is what I mean by that. Well, I can prove to you the Bible is the word of God and you show all these different proofs for it and all this, that, and the other. Well, I'm not saying that's wrong. That's okay. We need to be able to make a defense for what we believe. But if somebody comes to Christ ultimately because they made an emotional or an intellectual decision, then it'll just take something 
other intellectually or emotionally that can drive them away. But if they come to Jesus Christ because they are a sinner in need of a savior, if they are a wanderer in need of a shepherd, if they are a lost soul who needs to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ, then that's a good thing because we will always need that. But intellectual arguments can come and go. And intellectual arguments can be made by people who don't really follow Christ themselves, but they just know how to intellectually argue things. Brothers and sisters, at the heart of Christianity is I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm a sinner who needed a savior. I was under my own lordship and the lordship of the devil, and I want now to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, risen at the right hand of God the Father on high. Never, ever move off that seat. He never will. He's always going to be there. Shallow commitment. Let's go to soil number three. Soil number three. Verses eight and nine. Other seed. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, verse seven. I'm sorry. I jumped ahead to the last one. Verse seven. Other seeds fell among thorns and the thorns came up and choked them. I remember... When I did my first real garden, it was in North Dakota. There was a big patch of land back there. And I thought, man, this nice, deep, rich soil. And so I got this really big thing plotted out. I mean, it's probably at least the size of the sanctuary, just about. It was really, really large. I thought, man, I'm going to make a lot of food, man. And I'm going out there with my shovel. And I'm doing a hand tilling just like that. Well, one of the deacons in the church comes by and he says, Pastor, get out of there. And he says, just wait a half an hour. He comes back, less freeze, bless his heart. He comes back with like a five ton or 10 ton. I don't know how many tons it was. It was a lot of ton truck full of like 10 year old manure. And it is rich. And he just, I mean, the whole, whole garden raised up about a foot with just this pure manure. And so what I'm thinking, because I don't know anything, is I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to have to incorporate all that into the soil. And I'm thinking, I'm going to have to dig it up. And he just laughs at me and says, Pastor, just plant it right into the manure. I said, okay. So I, I do that. I plant it into the manure. And, and I'll get to the end of the story that we had the best tasting tomatoes, the best, I mean, the, the carrots were like orange red and sweet. My wife actually made carrot pie and it tasted just as sweet as sweet potato pie or pumpkin pie. You can imagine it was just so good. We would get zucchinis that were real small that tasted like corn on the cob. Just drizzle a little butter on that thing. Mm, it was so good. <laughs> and it was just a great crop. But one thing I noticed, you know something that cattle feed on? They feed on weeds and all kinds of plants. And you know, what began in the stomach comes out in the end. And so you know what I had to do a lot of? I had to do a lot of weeding. <laughs> so it's in that manure and it's growing great, but boy, oh boy, I got to go out there at least once or twice a week and get all that weeds out of the way because the weeds would rob the nutrition from the plants that we wanted to get fruit from. We couldn't do that. So, man, I, I'm going to have to get all these weeds. Well, Jesus explains this parable here. Verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world 
and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. As pure and as holy and as powerful as the word of the living God is, if our hearts are set on the world, either we're worried, oh, what am I going to do? I need this or I need that. Or, well, my retirement plan, the 401k is up there really good. I've got things that go on, things are paid for. Oh yeah, my savings account is rich. And this. The worry of it on the one side or the deceitfulness thinking, well, I've got enough because my savings account is enough. Everything's fine. The deceitfulness of riches and the worry of riches. I hope one thing that you're understanding in the things that I've shared about farmers is there's one attribute that if you're going to be a decent farmer, you have to be, and that is the attribute of patience. You have to be patient. You have to, you have to get up in the morning and do your job no matter how you feel. You've got to do what you have to do, and then you have to be patient. You pray, God, please, no hailstorms, no tornadoes, nothing to tear this stuff. Grant us enough water, and then when you do get the harvest, you give thanks to God. Isn't it amazing that some of the feasts that are in the Bible to celebrate the goodness of God took place at the same time harvest was taking place? God wanted us to know the reason why you have food is because of me, because God has so ordained it. But isn't it wonderful, the fact that it's farming? Because it's like we're in partnership with God. And do you know the same is true with souls, harvesting souls, growing souls, discipling souls, that we are in partnership. The Holy Spirit does the work on the heart, but we still have to be involved in the process. We still have to care and help and guide and lead and share the scripture and train and teach and do those things and show love in tangible ways so that people understand, well, these aren't phony people. These are, these, this is the real deal. But the deceitfulness of riches and the worries that come along with them can do that. Let's turn in our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel, good old Zeke. Ezekiel 33, verse 31. He was saying this to people who were coming up to God and say, we want to hear the word of the Lord. This is what he said. And they come to you as people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with their lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on gain. It's just like what Jesus was teaching us here, the deceitfulness of riches. How many of you know, how many men and women out there know, I've got to make a living. I've got to put food on the table for my family. I've got to do what I got to do. That's, that's life. That's real reality. But my trust and my devotion and my commitment need to be to God. Now, the Bible says, if a man shall not work, neither let him eat. In other words, we, we should be expected to work for our living and to do what we have to do to, to, to supply the needs of our family. I started working when I was 16, and I don't think I've really stopped since then. So <laughs> that's just the way of life. And I don't feel badly about it. I don't feel like I've been deprived of anything. I think actually it's been good for me to do that, to learn I got to do it. How many of you know the hunger in a man urges him on to work? That's what the Bible says. 
it's good to be hungry once in a while. It's good to have a little bit of need so that you're out there being diligent. You're out there doing your work. You're pursuing excellence in whatever you're doing. You want to do a good job. You want to be there. That's, that's good. That's vital. That's important. But I also want us to know our trust is in the Lord. See, one of the problems we have is we forget that God created everything. We think because we eat food and it comes packaged that, whoa, this is what man has prepared for us. This is what God has given us. And sometimes we wreck the food after we grow it. Too, so I, don't, I, don't, I won't go off on that. But then look at the, the final soil, soil number four. Verses eight and nine, what Jesus says in chapter 13. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. The interpretation, one verse, verse 23. As for, this, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands it, and he indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This is the person, their, their, their heart is not fallow, it's not hard, it's tender. They've received the word of God, they've, they've guarded it, they've, they've shepherded it in their own heart. They're, I want to do it exactly, and then they understand it, and then from understanding comes what? Action. They're actually doing the word of God. Remember what Jesus said in Luke's gospel? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? It's like, you're the boss, you're the boss. I'm going to ignore you, but you're the boss, you're the boss. You know? You're the Lord, you're the Lord, but I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. Well, how am I the Lord exactly in your life? If you're not actually doing what I say you to do. Now, the wonderful thing about Jesus is he doesn't tell us to go out and do bad things. <laughs> he tells us to do good things, good for ourselves, good for others. So it's like, how would you like to have a boss and the only thing he requires you to do is going to be good for yourself and good for others and good for him? That sounds like a good boss. Jesus is a good boss. Okay? I don't, I don't, I don't want to be carnal about it, but brothers and sisters, we've got to understand that. And, and many of you know that. You've been practicing the word. You've put it in the practice. You've done what he says. And you're, you're reaping the blessings of it, whether it's in your families or in your lives or things like that. And then, and then it helps us to, under, to discern what is right and what is wrong. Farmers must be patient. The Bible says in Philippians 1.6, He who began the good work in you will bring it to completion. You may think, well, I'm not as holy as I want to be. God's not done yet. I don't know God as deeply as I want to. God's not done yet. He began the work. He will bring it to completion. He will bring it to completion. How many of you ever heard of the Beatitudes? How many of you ever heard of the 12 steps of AA? Anyone here ever heard of that? Well, I like to call the Beatitudes the eight steps of Jesus. <laughs> and I want to briefly, as brief as I can, go over them with you so that you can begin to understand how this heart thing takes place. Number one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, blessed are those who realized how impoverished they are, how spiritually poor they are. The Greek word that's used there is the word that's the lowest of the poor. These are the people scraping in the gutters, 
just for a handout. This is the poorest of the poor. It's not that they're great in debt. They don't even worry about debt. They're just, they don't have anything. They're out there all by themselves. They're scrounging. They're like, you know, they're just, they're just the poorest of the poor. Why are they blessed, God? Because when we realize our spiritual poverty, it brings us to number two. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. When we realize our spiritual poverty, we begin to mourn over it. Oh, God. The year I got saved, for about six months before I got saved, I was going through the ringer. I was a confirmed atheist, believed everything was up to me. There was no God out there or anything like that. And I began coming to the reality that my life is not as good as I think it is. The reality of my life is there's things wrong with me and I can't fix it. And I, I had this like this cloud over me for about six or eight months. I had it all together, I thought, before that. But there was this cloud over me like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I fix myself? Why can't I fix myself? What will that lead us into? The next. Blessed are the meek, the humble. When we, when we realize our poverty and it causes us to mourn, groan, be grieved over it, grieved over our sin, grieved over our selfishness, whatever you want, God, I'll, I'll surrender. Everything. My time, my money, my abilities, everything is yours, God. See, that's what meekness is. Surrender. And then what does that lead to? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I've done it wrong my whole life, God. And there's something broken inside of me. But I'll surrender to you. Now I want to do it the right way. Show me. Show me. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. But then comes in this kicker. Blessed are the merciful. It's not a pharisaical righteousness. It's not, I'm better than you. It's also with a lot of mercy. Why? Because you've been shown so much mercy. Because you remember how impoverished you were and how Jesus forgave you and you mourned over it. And you, when, once you surrendered, you, the peace came without, you didn't have to work for it, it just came. You surrendered and his peace came on you. Why in the world wouldn't you be merciful to others? Because he was so merciful to you. And then what happens? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I want to remind you of Isaiah 66. You can build the greatest edifices in the world, dedicate them to God, but until we tremble and are contrite and humble before God, we will not know his presence. In the 70s, when we were seeing people get saved left and right and all that, it's because in the meetings, the presence of God was there. I think I told you about a, a guy, he picked him up drunk, says, oh, you guys don't want me to go to church. Worship began, the presence of God fell, tears are just streaking down this guy's cheeks. There was a reality there that he could feel, he could sense it was called the presence of God. I had people who were not believers, and they didn't become believers because they came to the meetings, but they left the meeting and says, I felt something there like I never felt before in my life. There was a presence of God. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you that when our brother, who's an excellent worship leader, when he leads worship, enter in as much as you can. Because you will be amazed what the presence of God will do. The anointing will break the yoke. The anointing will set people free as the presence of God comes in our midst. 
people can be set free right there in their seats. I'm not saying it's going to happen or when it's going to happen or how it's going to happen. I'm just saying, brothers and sisters, let's encourage that. Encourage the presence of God. Blessed are the peacemaker. It's not just that you have peace with God. Now you're trying to help other people get peace with God and peace with one another. Working out reconciliation. This takes place. And then, of course, the blessing that we're all waiting for, the final one is, blessed are those who are persecuted. <laughs> So if you're living right and you're getting your life right with God, guess what? People aren't going to like you for that. <laughs> you're not going to be Mr. or Mrs. Popular necessarily. How many, how many of you know Jesus wasn't Mr. Popularity necessarily? <laughs> Woo. How, who was it that went after Jesus? Who are the people that went after Jesus more than anybody? The religious leaders. Did you know that on the whole... Israeli people loved Jesus, the flocks, but that drove the leaders, the religious leaders, crazy. Because they says, man, he's going to take away our place. They're going to start worshiping God before we know it. And they need to come to our group instead. <laughs> Let's stand. Brothers and sisters, what is the condition of your heart? As I've been sharing, Let's stand. Go ahead, Stan. I guess you didn't hear me. <laughs> or maybe you're just amazed. Is he done? <laughs> yeah, I'm done. But just put your heart before the Lord. Lord, where do you want me to be at? I want to have a tender heart. I want to be tender hearted. So when the word comes in, it bears fruit. 160, 30. I don't care if it's just 20 fold. I just want it to bear some fruit, God. I want to bear fruit for Jesus. Amen. Oh, Father. Help us as we examine our hearts, Lord. Are our hearts right? Are our hearts tender? Are our hearts contrite? Are they humble? Are we, are we really ready to receive the word implanted unto the saving of our souls? Grant it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.